Please turn to the Gospel of Mark. I'll be reading chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Pray. Father, my prayer is simply that after this morning we have a greater, more accurate understanding of those words. May you let us see what is plainly written in our Holy Bible as we open up the Gospels about this term kingdom of God so that the meaning will continue in our Christian lives to pop off the pages. It will help settle our theological grid. May we be moved, enter into, carried along by the power of Your Kingdom. In Jesus' name. After 25 weeks of redemptive history throughout the Bible where we've seen God creating the world. We've seen His covenant that He made with Abraham. His covenant He made with Moses. His covenant He made with David. Thousands of years have passed. Then we open up the New Testament. The Gospels. And right off the bat, It just jumps out everywhere at you, this term. The kingdom of God. Matthew 24, 14. And this is the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus says. This is the gospel of the kingdom that will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 4.23 And He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and what was Jesus doing? Proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. In Mark chapter 1, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, quote, the time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. I take it to mean that understanding this term, the Kingdom of God, must be evidently crucial to understanding the New Testament. And especially to understanding the Gospels, that is, the ministry of Jesus Himself. And so, I'm going to spend at least two, probably three weeks, it's like one big long sermon, I can't jam it all into one, but three weeks on this term, the Kingdom of God. And on purpose, there will be redundancy in these three weeks. There's an old saying that 
Repetition is the handmaid of good pedagogy. That means saying something over and over and over is one of the keys to teaching, to getting it into people. So we open up the New Testament. The Gospel is talking about, besides Jesus' birth, but in His ministry, A.D. 30. It's been 460 years since there's been a prophet. The Old Testament closed 460 years before. And then all of a sudden, we get this term from John the Baptist and then from Jesus. This is what's going on. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's near. Okay, where'd that come from? When you go to the Old Testament, that term, kingdom of God, is not there. Don't miss this though. The idea of the kingdom of God is there. Malkut, the, the word, the Hebrew word for kingdom means the government, the dominion or reign of a king. We have been in the kings for weeks. When you come into the New Testament, the Greek word is basileia for kingdom. Basileia to theu, kingdom of theu. God is at hand. And it means not necessarily kingdom with, okay, walls are up, there's a spatial realm, we got boundaries, that's my kingdom. It could mean that. But it also could mean, without the spatial idea, the right to reign. Rule as king. We have seen in the preceding weeks the idea of covenant with Abraham, with Moses, with David, even in the garden where God promised that He would crush the head of the serpent through the woman. The covenant, what does it mean? If you want to boil it down to its simplest, it means this, an oath. God has, in making covenants, bound Himself to His Word. An oath. That's what we do in the marriage covenant when a man makes an oath to the wife and a wife to the husband. We make an oath, I will be this, commit myself to you this way. So in the Old Testament where covenant meant an oath, specifically God making covenants, merciful covenants, was His oath to save mercifully. Now we come to the word kingdom. It's not a covenant. Kingdom is His rule, His reign, or His right to enact, carry out the oaths that He has made. Kingdom is that power and authority of reign and rule where He's carrying out the right or taking the right to enact the merciful covenants of salvation. Briefly, I want to summarize the last few weeks and talk about the Old Testament before we come into the New. And say, there are three stages in the Old Testament where we see the idea of the kingdom of God. The first is this, and we're going to say it in the light of this. Jesus came on the scene... And he said, Behold, the time now is fulfilled. A.D. 30. 
Now the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. Does that mean that the kingdom of God in the sense of God reigning as king never existed before in the earth? No. In the Old Testament, God was reigning as king. When He saved Abel, when He saved Abraham, Moses, David, Caleb, the prophets, when they had this miraculous thing called faith arise in them, that was a result of God's kingdom. His right to save, which was purchased by Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the world. In other words, remember as we have seen the prophets talk about new covenant. And Jesus said at the Last Supper, this is the blood, what I'm going to shed tomorrow. This is the blood of the new covenant. This, that is my life in the first century A.D., is what is purchasing the new covenant that Jeremiah and Ezekiel talked about that would come. Nevertheless, when we look at people like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and David, who were born again, which is the significant difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant. The Spirit puts the law of God in them. We would say it this way. David, though he was in the time of the Old Covenant, was a New Covenant person. In other words, before the official inauguration ceremony of the Covenant shed with Jesus' blood or purchased by His blood. Does that make sense? Well, in the same way, God was always reigning as King before the official inauguration of King Jesus coming. That's why all over the Old Testament we get texts like Psalm 103, the Lord, Yahweh, has established His throne in the heavens. And His kingdom, now in the Old Testament, rules over all. Or Psalm 145, verse 13, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Or Psalm 47, 2, For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king. Then, 700 B.C. A great king over all the earth. So that's the first stage we see. God Himself, who is God, is reigning as God. The kingdom of God exists and is acting. Secondly, as we have seen, God allowed Israel to have human kings. And we have seen, ultimately, it was as a judgment against them because they have rejected God as king. And thus, through the history of giving them their kings, it was proving to all mankind and Israel specifically that there's only one true king. God, the creator, the ruler, 
the maker of all. And we saw that history go up until Israel in 721, the northern kingdom was wiped out, and then in 586, the southern kingdom. That's the second stage that sets up when you open up your New Testament. Then there's the third stage, which we have seen the last two weeks, and that is the future hope, which is all over the Old Testament, about there's a future, something's coming, a king, the son of David. He's going to sit on the throne. He's going to rule forever. So the Old Testament, through David, through the books of Samuel, through the prophets, foretold the day that God would not only continue to reign as sovereign king in the heavens, but He would come and He would stand forth in glory and save His people and destroy His people's enemies. Save them from sin and misery and establish righteousness. And He would set up His throne physically on the earth. To just get a taste, I'm just going to give you a couple quotations from the Old Testament that gives a taste of God's revelation about the future hope. The book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah 14, verse 9, says... And the Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. Meaning there will be no competitors anymore. Isaiah 24, verse 23 Try to put yourself back in this time before Christ. You see these prophecies. You're a believer. You're waiting. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and His glory will be manifested before His elders. Then an ideal earthly existence is prophesied about. In Isaiah 11, verse 6, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. A new heavens and a new earth are foretold. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and former things will not be remembered. The psalmist, the, the prayer book of the Old Testament saints, in Psalm 89, verses 35 to 36, says, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Then after the exile... The prophet Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, saw in a vision, quote, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion 
and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not ever pass away. And His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. These are all over. These are the tastes that are there in the Bible before Jesus comes. So when Jesus comes on the scene and says, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. He means that the time for God to come and to break into this sinful world in a way that He never before had done is here. For God to come in His glory and to reign personally is here. To comfort His people and to defeat the enemy. So, there's that Old Testament taste. We open up the New Testament. John the Baptist is the forerunner. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. I prepare the way. Jesus, after His baptism, comes into His public ministry and His message is, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And as you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you read it carefully, you start to be stunned with it. The people don't get it. They're constantly confused about what Jesus is saying. Constantly baffled. Why? Here's the big question. What was the background of the first century Jews. In other words, what was their theological grid? What were they looking for? What did they understand about text like we just read from the Old Testament? That's what's important to understand why they were so baffled. You see, the background for the Jews that Jesus came to in the first century Palestine, the background was not just the Old Testament. Remember, they have been being ruled over by other people for over 400 years. They don't have their own king and haven't had it for probably close to 600 years. And so, what happened during the close of the Old Testament, book of Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah, 430 B.C., to the 300s and 200s and 100s, what was going on between that time and when John the Baptist and Jesus comes on the scene? wasn't just nothing going on. Remember the Jews after the exile came back into the land and they started to read the text of Scripture more than ever before. You see it in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're starting to say, we made the big mistake by ignoring the book. And it is in that period of time where the idea of synagogues and Judaism is birthed. And along with that came their eschatologies. 
In other words, there, what's going to happen in the last days? We see these prophecies in the end time. The king's going to come. What was their understanding of how that was going to happen? First of all, we know a whole lot about what they understood because they wrote about it. This is what we call intertestamental literature, meaning the, the theology, not biblical stuff, not the Bible, but their theology and writings and their understandings during the middle, meaning after the Old Testament and before the New Testament, intertestamental. We know that the idea of God reigning and ruling presently as king was gone. They didn't have that anymore. Everything was pushed to the future. They saw that, see, they're not worshiping the idols anymore and the bells when you come into the New Testament. They don't have that problem. They have synagogues, they have the book, they have different sects within their religion. And they're trying to figure out in the intertestamental time, how does this work out? We're not idolaters anymore. But nevertheless, we're still being oppressed by our enemies and we do not have independence and freedom. Why do we still suffer? If we have purified ourselves like the Bible has told us to do, why are we still suffering at the hands of the pagans? They have suffered under the hands of the Babylonians and the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans and presently in the New Testament still under the Romans. The answer to their questions are explained in that literature. The, the apocalyptic, Jewish apocalyptic, you know that word apocalypse, end time stuff? They're apocalyptic type literature and the pseudepigrapha. I know this is seminary, you have to memorize that, but you, you don't. But it's there we have their, their writings. And so their theology, in a, in a nutshell, they, and there are differing theologies, just like today, Christians have differences on their eschatology. Some Christians are pre-millennial. Others are post-millennial. Others are amillennial. Most of you are looking like, what are you talking about? But it, Okay, those are different ideas and convictions about the future and how that's going to work out in interpreting particular biblical passages. I mean, even today, 2007, there are... Thousands of evangelical Christians, if you say to them the word dispensationalism, they probably don't even know what that is, yet they're filled with a dispensational eschatology worldview because they've read the Left Behind series, and it was very exciting, and there's something within them that's probably pretty convinced that, yeah, that's how everything's going to work out at the end, something like that, and maybe not. But okay, so but but you got to understand. So there, so when you talk to them about a particular passage of scripture, they have a theological presupposition about how it's going to happen. Does it make sense? So the theological presuppositions that's that, that is in the minds of the Jews by the first century is basically what we can call. He's not a big word. Eschatological, end time stuff, dualism. 
This is where it's going to make sense if you read your Gospels. Meaning, dualism, two. This two thing, real simple. We live in the present evil age. And there's going to come a time, whoo, one fell swoop, the age to come will come in. You hear those words all the time in Jesus' mouth. This age. And the age to come. They had this grid. We live in the present evil age. We're being ruled by others. Demons exist. Satan exists. Suffering pain. But there's this promise of the future when the kingdom of God comes. It's going to wipe out Satan, demons, roam the whole works, and establish the throne of God on the earth and in Jerusalem. That's what they are waiting for. Now turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. They believe in the prophecies. They're waiting for the Son of David. He's going to come and deliver the people from Rome, from evil, from sickness, from sin, It's as if this heavenly realm is going to come to the present physical earthly realm and transform the whole thing. John the Baptist comes on the scene. They're kind of baffled. What are you talking about, kingdom of God? Then Jesus goes back home to Nazareth, goes into the synagogue, sits at the place where He's going to be the reader, And in chapter 4 of Luke, verse 17, I read, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End quote. Just end time prophecy. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everybody in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And Jesus began to say to them, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They're thinking, What are you talking? Because the kingdom in Jesus came in a way they did not expect. They had no categories for it. They had no theological grid. It didn't fit. The kingdom of God in the ministry of Jesus that He proclaimed came in a way they never expected. It came in fulfillment. Today, this prophecy is fulfilled here in the synagogue that you just heard. 
came in fulfillment, but not in its consummation, its finality. It's here. First century. A.D. 29-30. It's here in Jesus' very person being fulfilled. Yet, there are aspects of the kingdom that are all over the Old Testament prophesied about that are not here in His coming. First of all, one thing for sure about Jesus is that He was different. And one of my, I said, I love this text. In, in John chapter 7, verses 45 to 46, oh, it's one of my favorite texts. The Pharisees who want to trap Jesus send off their officers to try to <coughs> trap Him. And then in verse 45, the officers then came back to the chief priest and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring Him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. He was different. This man, Jesus, cast out demons with a word. God. This man, when he spoke and made proclamations publicly, see, you think it's just Bible. You know, ooh, the Bible speaks differently. No, it doesn't when you read Amen, Amen, or Truly, Truly. That Greek, Hebrew, English, Spanish, Amen. In the Old Testament, this is what you said when you're going to say, this is what God said. Amen. Amen. And so Jesus spoke like this. Amen. Amen. I say to you. He was different. He forgave sins and they got angry. Only God can forgive sins. But He forgave sins. Just try to put yourself back as a first century Jew. You're waiting for the kingdom to come. And it's not going to come in stages. It's going to come in one fell swoop, heaven breaking down to earth and changing everything. Separating the sheep from the goats. Wiping out Rome. You're waiting for that. That's your anticipation. You know Isaiah the prophet. You know when he said stuff like this in Isaiah 35 verses 4 to 6. Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Quote. You, you know these prophecies. You're anticipating them. Just like a lot of you Christians are anticipating prophecies about Jesus coming back again. Right? In the clouds of heaven. And the resurrection will happen and those who are dead will meet the Lord in the air. You're anticipating. They're anticipating that. First century Jews, like John the Baptist. He knew his calling. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a prophet. He also had a theological grid, and Jesus wasn't fitting into it real well. And that's why when he's in prison, waiting essentially to be executed, 
He finally sends some of his disciples, go find Jesus and ask him, are we supposed to look for someone other than you? They're not fitting. Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 20. And when the men had come to him that John the Baptist sent to Jesus, they said, Jesus, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, quote, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for someone else, another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, He restored sight. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by Me. Jesus' answer was yes on Him. Jesus was the bearer of the kingdom. The rule and the right to reign and rule of God Himself was in the very person of Jesus. He had that power and He had that authority and He possessed it in His very person. And thus, with the coming of Jesus, there was a coming of a realm in a way that had not been there before. He came and there was a realm called the reign or rule of God. It was a realm that people could enter into. Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 31, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God. It's a realm before you Pharisees. The other significant thing with in His person, and there is this realm that's there, this unseen realm, is that Jesus coming and bringing the kingdom meant it was one of its main core things, a clash, a confrontation with Satan. Demonic realm. The word Satan is used 36 times in the New Testament. Sixteen of those, almost half of those, are in the Gospels, in the ministry of Jesus. When you take the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you take John, you put all the miracles of Jesus together, many times they're repeated, and you put them together, there are basically 35 miracles of Jesus that were recorded. More than half of those had to do with exorcism. This confrontation with satanic thing was not new to the first century Jew. Their idea of understanding the kingdom was going to come and wipe out Satan, demonic forces, sickness, evil, etc. They expected. In their literature of the intertestamental period, there was a lot of stuff about demons. 
So they got that little grid. Now turn to Matthew chapter 12. I'll start reading with verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed, and they said, this should ring bells to you now, Abundant Grace, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, another word for Satan, it is only by Beelzebul that the prince of demons, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Here's the kicker. Therefore, they will be your judges. But, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I'm going to read it again. Here's Jesus' theology of the kingdom. If I, Jesus, cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then it's proof. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Because the kingdom of God coming in Jesus therefore must have meant at least this. There was a huge clash with the demonic realm. Kingdom. With demonic forces. Luke 10.17-18 says, quote, The 72... Jesus sent out 72 disciples to do ministry in all these different cities, okay? The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I don't think He means there. I had this vision and He felt like He means, I saw, I know what's happening. Because I gave you the authority of my kingdom. That's why you're casting down demons in my name. That's what he means by Satan falling. Something is happening here with the power of the kingdom coming in the person of Jesus. A realm being established that confronts demonic influence. The demonic realm. Yet, throughout Jesus' ministry... Demon activity continued. And it will continue until the end of the age. Therefore, what's going on? Let me try to, I'm trying to say it different ways. I know this is a real theological morning. I don't know how else to do it. I want you to be able to read your New Testament, and especially the Gospels, and have a clue about what Jesus is talking about. 
Therefore, instead of waiting for what we do see in Old Testament Scripture and New Testament Scripture, prophecies that still have not come about yet, instead of waiting for the end of the age, when a new heavens and a new earth, etc., will be established and the kingdom of God will be on earth, instead of waiting for all that to happen, Jesus declared in His ministry, the kingdom of God is here. Instead of waiting at the end of the age where He will destroy absolutely Satan and all demons and all evil and all cancer and pain, sickness, blindness, mental problems. Instead of waiting till the end of the age when that would happen, He is declaring in His earthly ministry the kingdom of God has come now into the present evil world and curbed the power of Satan. In other words, the kingdom of God has two stages. The kingdom of God is coming at the end of this quote age. It is going to come in such a way that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Sin, sickness, tear, pain, anxiety will be utterly wiped out. And the second stage, or really the first stage, is in the coming of Jesus in His ministry to bind Satan. He's come now where a realm is set up and is operative. People are entering that kingdom. The kingdom is having clashes with satanic power even till today. We can say it this way, that future kingdom where we know now, let me jump ahead, we know now, in Jesus' second coming, This is what they had no theological apparatus for understanding. That there were two comings. He came first to suffer and to die on a cross to pay the price to have His right to rule savingly. He would not have that right to rip you out of the kingdom of darkness the kingdom of Satan, to transfer you from being a child of Satan to a child of God. He would not have that right if He did not go to the cross and rise. But that future kingdom prophesied about coming back, we now know that's His second coming back in His resurrected body. They, that's what didn't fit and things just were not making sense to Him. So we say it this way though. What is still future even for us today? That future kingdom where Jesus would come back and rule and reign forever and ever and ever as a man. The God-man. No pain, no sickness, no tears. Utterly different in a sense that future, this is where it gets to be kind of like, that future Star Trek type of reality has kind of come back into the past, or really now the present. That which is future has infiltrated the present 
in portion in the ministry of Jesus that He set up and has been here ever since. Now, that which I'm trying to communicate, the kingdom is present, but it's still not yet. The aspects of the kingdom have come. They're here. Other aspects are still future. They are not yet. Does the kingdom bring healing? It's being fulfilled. It's here. Yet, people still will be sick and die. It's not yet. This idea is explicit in the Gospels. That's why Jesus talks about, Behold, the kingdom of God is here now in my person. It's present. People are entering it. And then, in the next breath, He'll talk about the kingdom of God which is not here. It's future. It hasn't come yet. There's going to be a day. This is the tension when you're reading, especially the Gospels, the tension that we get. He speaks as the kingdom of God being here. Remember, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He says there are people who have been violently taking hold of the kingdom since I got here, since the days of John the Baptist. They're, 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 they're trying to enter the kingdom. And then in the next breath, when the kingdom comes in the future, let me give you a few examples. First, the future aspect out of the mouth of Jesus, meaning the kingdom in this sense is not here. Luke chapter 19, 11, quote, As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Because He was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And the point was, it's not. Remember the first chapter of Acts. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He's been teaching them over a period of 40 days and they ask, Jesus, when is the kingdom coming? Is it coming now? Just, just wait until Jerusalem when I send the Holy Spirit. Matthew 25, 34. Jesus said, Then, meaning future, there's a day coming and it still hasn't come. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Luke chapter 13, verse 28. In that place, there will be future, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. That's future. Now, just a couple of the, of the present. Jesus talks about, no, no, the kingdom's here. Luke chapter 4, verse 21, we saw that today. This Scripture about the King coming with the Kingdom, today it is fulfilled in your hearing. Or Matthew 12, 28, 
as we saw, if I, Jesus, presently, first century, cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then that's evidence that the kingdom has come. The kingdom of God is right here upon you. It's in your midst. Matthew eleven twelve. From the days of John the Baptist, Jesus says, until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and violent men take it by it's here. It's in your midst. So the kingdom of God, Jesus uses that term, it means the power and the reign of God. And in one sense in His ministry and today, that kingdom, that rule, that reigning of Christ, Jesus, God, savingly, is here. A person could enter it or remain outside of it. it doesn't have physical boundaries, but it's all around omnipresent. But, in another sense, that kingdom is not here yet. In the sense of its consummation. Totally physically here, everywhere. In this sense, where there will be one day the physical bodily resurrection of all believers who will then, in the consummation, be able to see God face to face. Where there will be the separation of the sheep from the goats or from the regenerate people. From the unregenerate people. There will be no more pain, sickness, cancer, crying. There will be unhindered joy. That future kingdom is not yet. But a, in a sense, a portion, a taste of that is broken off and come back into the present world in the ministry of Jesus and is here today. And people are entering it. And that's the tension that exists throughout the New Testament. Now, this coming Jesus is coming in the first century in fulfillment, but not yet, was totally unexpected by the Jews around him. Even his own disciples weren't getting it. Luke 24, 21, after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, Remember, his disciples, they didn't know they were talking to Jesus. They're just baffled. They're so depressed. They weren't getting it, still weren't getting it. And listen to what they said. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They killed him. And of course, John the Baptist. Are you, are you the one or not? What am I doing in jail? Why is Herod still have authority over me? See, their theology, their last days theology, their eschatology, never accounted for Isaiah 53. The suffering servant. They, in all their literature, they don't have it. It's not there. They don't see that as the Messiah at all. They don't see that as the Son of David. It was there. It was in the Old Testament. They had no way to put 
put it in their theological grid. Let me just quote Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 5. I can quote much more, but just listen to what the Bible said. Surely He, who's this He? Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him the chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. They didn't have that meaning. This is the greater Son of David. The Messianic figure. Uh Uh-uh. It wasn't there. Yet in reality, that's how the Son of David would come the first time. Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. Peter, a first century Jew, got mad at Jesus when, quote, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, that Daniel prophecy of this king going to reign forever and ever, who he himself refers to himself as the Son of Man, that messianic figure, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. There's no This doesn't make any sense to them. They didn't realize that the right to rule, which is the basic understanding or meaning of kingdom of God, His right to rule and reign mercifully and savingly, had to be purchased by suffering and death. That was there in the Old Testament. They had no category for that. And so on the road to Emmaus, after Jesus' resurrection, before His ascension, starting with verse 25, I don't know, what is it? Luke something. Just listen. And Jesus said to them, and they didn't know it was Jesus yet, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself, the Son of David, the Messiah, the One who was to come. They should have seen it. They didn't. And this is predominantly what the New Testament means by the mystery of the kingdom. And we have two more weeks, I think, at least, on kingdom. But for this morning, that kingdom that Jesus proclaimed was here in His first coming is relevant, really relevant for 2007. Because that kingdom 
that reign, that rule, that right to reign in that realm is present. There are millions of people who are oblivious to it. And there are other people who are desperately climbing into it, existing in it, being ruled over by it presently. Here's my exhortation for us this morning. Strive to enter. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. There is a kingdom coming that's not yet. There will be a day when the king will separate the sheep from the goats that's not yet. There's a day when there will be a new heaven, a new earth, and things will be eternally divided. A kingdom, a rule, a reign of God over those who are His savingly. Strive to make sure you are there. How? Listen to Jesus' words one day. Bring the children to me. The children are there. He says to the people and to us, unless you become like a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. Strive. To have that implicit trust in God that eight-year-old children have in Daddy. That's what Jesus is saying. There is a childlike faith that we, when we're children, have to Mommy and Daddy. They love me. They take care of me. I don't have to worry about how bills are being paid. Just wake up and expect stuff. Unless you become like that to God, you will never enter that future kingdom. One more text that I help that helps enlighten. John three, verse five. Jesus also said this, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless a person is born of water and of the Spirit, what he meant, what he just said before, born again by the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. New birth. That born again happening, which is a work of the Holy Spirit, is the presence and the power of the rule, the reign, the kingdom of God infiltrating and invading a sinful, wrath-laden, deserving person's life and plunging them into the kingdom. How? By causing them to become like little children. 
who look at God, Jesus, as a child looks at mommy and daddy, and what they see about the proclamation of the Gospel of the Kingdom is that it's beautiful now. And there is this, they don't know where something happened to them that made them once again like a child when it came to a heart of trust in what they heard. And to and up till today, the King is saying through His people, the church, to anyone who would hear, to the millions of people who presently remain outside the kingdom of God, King Jesus says, Come. Come unto Me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And anybody on this earth today who wants to come, can. And they will enter into the kingdom of God that is present. And to us Christians who say, I know that's me. I've entered it. It means that you have come into a possession. Meaning you possess, as the Gospel of John says, eternal life. Because you possess in your very being, it was put there by the kingdom, the spirit of the kingdom, the very eternal life of the king, his son. And when you find yourself, I have that childlike faith, trust, it's because you were born again by the power of the king. And the evidence is not that our names are on a church roll. The evidence is not that I was water baptized. The evidence of the kingdom being present in a person's life is that they are in a lifestyle of striving, desperately yearning and desiring to show up at the future manifestation of the kingdom of God on that last day. Father, fill our... fill that desire factory by the power of Your kingdom in the person of Your Holy Spirit in this room as we sing our hearts out about the King, the Kingdom. Oh, we desire so much, Jesus, this relationship to grow. It is good to be ruled over by such a compassionate, merciful, glorious, self-giving, happy-making King as You. Amen.